0: You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Domecast, your weekly look back and ahead at North Carolina uh, government and politics. I'm Pat Gannon from the North Carolina Insider State Government News Service. I'm here with Dan Boylan of the Insider, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, the news and observer, here to talk about the first week in uh, the 2016 short legislative session, which um, we're hearing may be done by July 4th, but we all know how these things can be. Um, as I said, we, we got off to a, st- um, a pretty uh, interesting start to the short session, not in terms of bills, but in terms of all the attention around House Bill 2. And Dan Boylan. Who kind of uh, who's new with the insiders and he's kind of and he's new to North Carolina government. So we sent him out uh, Monday just to kind of uh, take in the scene and 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 see what he thought, learn his way around a little bit, and talk to some folks about opening day. And uh, Dan, what did you uh, what did you see?
2: Uh, thank you, Pat. It was a beautiful spring day Monday, seventy seven degrees, and uh, I I thought one of the images that stuck out in my mind was a portable. Uh, It was a truck that had portable billboards on it that kept circling the General Assembly. And this fellow apparently does this once in a while. And on the sides, it had these massive billboards that said, perverse politicians pass perverse laws. As he was doing that, there was someone from North Carolina, Normal, and the marijuana advocates who were running around and yelling on occasion, you know, make pot legal. Um, This was just the scene setter for the fact that there were about 4,000 people on the back green uh, Halifax Green behind the General Assembly with uh, Pastor Ron Beatty and Return America, a Christian, a conservative Christian uh, grassroots organization. They had about 4,000 people out there. House Speaker Tim Moore was out there. This was all on behalf of HB2. Uh, where there was a lot of scripture, families. Then on the, you know, helicopter yourself, over the General Assembly into the front, into the Bicentennial Mall there, and you had face painting going on, uh, people getting stamps, like stamping their wrists so that they were queer and transsexual, um, and just sort of a carnival there, and that was all in opposition of HB2. I just took a run through the uh, press room uh, at the Assembly, and I spoke to Gary Roberts, a longtime AP, uh, and WRAL's Laura Leslie. Who said that it was probably the most? It was definitely not probably. Pardon me. Let me correct myself. Definitely the, the most chaotic and lively opening day of a North Carolina General Assembly session that they'd ever witnessed.
1: It's a very good description. Uh, there's a lot going on uh, that day on Monday. Um, as far as uh, bills this week, we didn't really get into much. The House is starting to uh, to move forward with its budget. We heard from uh, the governor on his budget, and we'll talk to we'll talk about that in the second segment. Um, we're going to move on now to uh, Colin Campbell of the News and Observer, um, who's been following, you met Dan mentioned uh, House Bill 2, who's been following kind of the latest, latest developments in that, uh, in House Bill 2. Uh, Colin, what do you know today?
0: So, uh, I think the biggest development we saw in House Bill 2 this week was... Uh, The suggestion of a possible voter referendum, this came from uh, Senate Rules Chairman Tom Apodaca, who's basically sort of the second command on the uh, Senate side. Uh, He was doing an interview, I think uh, it was about Tuesday or so, with an Asheville TV station, floated this idea of uh, putting this on the ballot, possibly in November. It would probably be in the form of a constitutional amendment, uh, as that's really the only way you could put a ballot question uh, before voters in North Carolina is in the form of a, a constitutional amendment. Uh, and that certainly got a lot of folks talking about uh, sort of what the implications of that would would be. Uh, the cynic in me immediately thought of the uh, November election and the uh, turnout concerns that we're hearing from Republicans nationally with the idea that if uh, Donald Trump is the nominee, some of the Republican base uh, may not want to uh, make a decision between him and Hillary Clinton and, and may stay home. Uh, an issue of, of social issues that's got a lot of people talking might get some of those folks out to the vo- uh, ballot box uh, and then would help out chances for some other states. Statewide Republican candidates, uh, but it's all really hard to say with the polling um, how this issue would go one way or another. A lot of it depends on how something like that would be worded. So far, the reaction we've gotten to it has been fairly minimal. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader Harry Brown says it's something that the Senate Republicans are going to consider in a caucus meeting fairly soon. Uh, I asked for some comment from uh, House Speaker Tim Moore. His folks declined to comment on it, um, really did not get much of anything uh, on this issue out of the House. Uh, ditto for some of the groups that have uh, sponsored or pushed for HB2, including the Family uh, Policy Council. Uh, they had no comment on it, so it's, it tells me that there's a lot of folks uh, perhaps doing some polling and, and trying to uh, feel out the odds for, for what a referendum would end up being and, and what the political implications would be before uh, anyone jumps on board Tom Apodaca's suggestion and, and makes this sort of a serious uh, issue before the legislature.
1: Yeah, it's a good point about this being one of those uh, issues that can keep uh, people riled up uh, as we head into, clo- or as we get closer to November. Uh, clearly, House Bill Two has a lot of people talking on both sides of the aisle, and and if you know if a referendum ends up getting debated and/or put on the ballot, it's going to be discussed widely uh, through then, and I'm sure we'll see lots of hB2 yard signs in in lawns for now yeah not I recommend.
0: mean it'll be almost a carbon copy I would think of the amendment one the same-sex marriage amendment from back in 2012 uh, you get fairly w- well-funded advocacy groups on both sides of it you'll see TV commercials. Um, it will not come out of the news cycle, which uh, could be a plus or a minus depending on uh, how you view the issue politically. If, if you'd like it to go away, that's not the way to get it to go away. Um, if you want to keep it as the top story on the news every night for the next six months, uh, that would be one way to do it.
2: And I, I, I want to add something. there. I think that, that this is Dan. Uh when you have these stories that are there, a tremendous confluence of culture and politics and the so-called culture wars that we've been at here in the United States for the last few decades. So, uh, it's amazing when you're when you're at a state legislature, when you're at a general assembly, and it's opening, and you do go home and you realize it's on the BBC or it's on the we were on the Colbert Report.
0: Yeah, two nights um, in a row, I think Colbert was cracking jokes about HB two.
2: Right, and and you realize that that, yeah, I mean. I was going to say that one. adding one last piece to this, on the opening day in the General Assembly, the State Archives had a copy of the North Carolina uh, State Constitution. Yeah, it was this uh,
0: really interesting exhibit that was almost completely overshadowed. They hardly had a crowd by it all day with these amazing old documents preserved in glass and visible on sort of a a rare occasion.
2: Yeah, and it makes me think of that old, uh, I think it's the line by... uh, Jefferson who said that uh, Thomas Jefferson that he wanted the democracy to be noisy and I thought he's looking down on this on the events today and either thinks this is glorious or chaos <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I love that one, one more thing to get on in on House Bill 2 um, there were repeal bills filed by Democrats in both the House and the Senate, uh, I think, was it the first day of session or first session Yeah, the, the or...
0: House did theirs on day one, and then I think the Senate did theirs on Wednesday, but it was virtually the identical bill. Just and kind and of a...
1: where did the Senate uh, repeal bill go?
0: Okay, this was very quick uh, succession. So in the House bill, uh, the, the repeal bill, I, I w- wondered sort of if they were going to, Uh, immediately kill it in the Republican leadership. In that case, uh, Speaker Moore put out a statement basically saying, this is going to go through the usual process that any other bill goes through. Uh, We'll consider it. Uh, So it went to Judiciary 4 Committee, which is the same committee that um, had the original hearing on House Bill 2 during the special session. Uh, So basically, the committee chairs there get to decide what to do with it. And I would be surprised if they uh, took it up for a vote or at least a a serious vote uh, in, in that side. On the Senate side, It's pretty much dead. Um, The Senate has kind of an inside joke committee. Um, It's called the Ways and Means Committee. sounds like it would be a a budget committee, but in fact, it's a committee of only three people, led by Senate Rules Chairman Tom Apodaca, uh, that has never met in years. And it's where Apodaca and the Senate leadership essentially throw things that they uh, just want to sort of kill off the bat. Because if if it's in a committee that never meets, then it's never going to get taken up for a vote. And that's where the Senate version of the repeal bill went uh, as of Thursday.
1: Judiciary 4, Representative Daughtry's Committee.
0: Uh, He's J1. uh, Judiciary 4 is Hugh Blackwell and Rob Bryan are the chairs. That's right. My bad. I
1: was thinking if it was Daughtry's Committee, he did allow a hearing on the medical marijuana bill last year which uh, which got a lot of attention.
0: Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, of, of the, the circus atmosphere, that was uh, one where they had, they had this hearing on medical marijuana. It was very, very heated. There was even an allegation of someone punching one of the Republican uh, House members on their way out. Um, and of course, it was immediately voted down, I think almost unanimously by the committee. And that was the end of the mar- mar- medical marijuana discussion in North Carolina for 2015.
1: Yeah. And there was another medical marijuana bill filed this week by Representative Kelly Alexander, who files one Every year. So those were some of the uh, goings-on on in the first week. And uh, while we're on the House Bill 2 topic, uh, Dan Boylan uh, took his uh, audio recorder uh, out on the streets in, in Raleigh around the legislative building um, this week, including Monday, the day of the protests. And he talked to uh, people on both sides of House Bill 2. You're going to hear from them now. We have Brandy from Carrie First, a uh, transgender uh, woman. Um, And then you'll hear from uh, Chris Bortz, uh, who's from Kenley in Johnston County, and uh, who's kind of, uh, I guess, middle of the road on the issue. And then Jay Miller, who's Chris Bortz's Bortz's friend from Boise, Idaho, who uh, thinks North Carolina's doing the right thing in in keeping House Bill 2 on the books. Uh, We'll hear from them now.
0: Transgendered people, uh, males and females, have been using the bathroom that they identify with for fifty years or more um, and there there's never been you know any problems like they're claiming and I'm sure there's a problem here or there, but not like they're claiming you know I mean we've had a civil pretty civil society so far the the way it, the way it has been you know it's
3: a great point and now
0: now they want to change it and they're actually going to be putting men in the women's restroom and uh, females in the men's restroom, so kind of counteracts what they're claiming. <laughs> Did you get my point? Uh, especially, I have a daughter. Uh, my friend here has a daughter. I, I don't know if I want, you know, a transgender person actually walking in on my daughter. Not saying that that happen, but so I, I'm not really against it, but I'm not really for it either. I'm kind of in the middle on it. I think, you know, I can understand it has its good points. But also, Standa has its bad points. Also, uh, especially, I mean, we've been doing it for how long? You know, men, women—they have family, you know, bathrooms now, and now they want a transgender type thing where the old pass, where you know, I, I just—I don't really see the big to-do
3: over it. To be honest with you, the big to-do about the bathroom bill—I applaud North Carolina for taking a stance on it. Uh, I think. People with their agendas have you know, pushed other states around, and I, I applaud North Carolina for, for being strong.
1: And we'll be back with our second segment right after this.
2: In the small town of Elmira, New York, a boy was born into an all-American family. The odds of him achieving his dream in the fashion industry? One in 23 million. The odds of having a child diagnosed with autism, 1 in 68. I am Tommy Hilfiger, and my family is affected by autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.
1: And we're back here on the Domecast with our uh, second segment this week. We have Craig Jarvis from the News and Observer, who covered a pretty big topic that got... Pretty much less attention than it might otherwise this week, given that it was the start of the session, the governor's budget, House Bill 2, everything else um, had to do with the lawsuit filed uh, against the voter ID legislation that the Republicans passed, as well as some other provisions of of that election law passed by Republicans. Craig, uh, get us up to speed on what happened there this week.
3: Yeah, this this was dropped on Monday night as the session was opening and hordes of people were protesting. It's like the last thing anybody wanted to see, and it was like 485, something like that, page opinion. uh it was not welcome news in that regard. But basically what happened with that is this, a federal judge uh, threw out all the, um, the uh, complaints filed by a group of citizens and activist groups, over the was a 2013 um, elections law um, bill that, that took effect, which had voter ID and shortened uh, uh, early registration, early voting. I mean that and that kind of thing. Uh, he threw it out. Um, the other side immediately said they're going to appeal it to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. But uh, um, basically, what, what he what he ruled, I think, was that was a, on a procedural issue. There was a standard of proof was not met. Uh, if if I have that right. Anyway, um, the plaintiff's main point was that there's a two-pronged test uh, for the, f- to determine violations of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and uh, one is if it, dis- if it imposed a discriminatory burden, which left some people uh, that are in a protected class with less opportunity to participate in an election. Uh, the plaintiffs felt like they put on plenty of evidence to, to support that. And the other prong being that whether that burden is linked to some social and historical conditions that have produced uh, discrimination. Um, And and on that point, Judge Thomas Schroeder said that there is a significant, quoting here, there's a significant shameful past discrimination. Uh, In North Carolina's recent history, however, certainly for the last quarter century, there is little official discrimination to consider. Uh, and, the, and the plaintiff said he was basing that all on the voter turnout from 2014. Uh, so he said it was a really high turnout, so that kind of demonstrates there's not a problem. The plaintiffs are saying, well, that doesn't isn't really probative. It doesn't take into account factors like that was a very a uh, lot of excitement around that election, big turnout, turnout anyway. So. Um, in conclusion, Bob Hall, the Democracy in North Carolina kind of watchdog, campaign finance, election finance guy, uh, played off the judge's comments and uh, saying agreeing there is a significant shameful past discrimination but certainly for the last quarter century there is little official dis- discrimination uh, uh he said there is little official discrimination to consider hopefully he said other judges are going to take off their rose-colored glasses and look at the facts with more care i think i misquoted him there i think he's saying there was plenty of discrimination to uh to, to consider right so that's really where we're at
1: That's uh, the other uh, big tidbit of news to go along with the other uh, things that we're talking about today, and I'm sure we'll uh, continue to follow that as that case uh, moves into the appeal Uh, process uh craig thank you and Uh, once
3: again i apologize to all the lawyers in the room and (laughs) and the listening audience and especially those involved in this case
1: yeah people need to understand sometimes that we're not lawyers yeah and and actually
3: i didn't write this particular story in my defense your honor Uh, (laughs) i'm just reporting what i know and
1: even (laughs) even if you were a lawyer trying to boil down a 385 page or whatever it was uh um, decision in a matter of minutes on Monday night, which some reporters had to do, is is just it was
3: yeah crippling,
1: beyond crazy. <laughs> um, thanks, Craig. We yep. appreciate it. Um, and we're gonna uh, skip uh, skip over now to uh, Colin Campbell, the News Observer. He and I will chat a little bit about the, the, what's going on with the budget process. Um, Colin, kind of where are we at?
0: Yeah. So we talked a little, I guess, a little bit about the budget last week. Uh, the governor. Uh, last Friday had come out with his uh, proposal, but not the document itself. So he basically Uh, Previewed the highlights in a press conference and said, you know, you'll get the book with the whole budget and all the nitty-gritty details on Wednesday, uh, which was when the uh, governor's budget director, Drew Heath, uh, presented the proposal to uh, a group of legislators, the Joint Appropriations Committee, which felt like it was just about every legislator, uh, showed up for that meeting to to hear what he had to say and weigh in. Um, And I think the biggest takeaway from that to me was that legislators of both parties didn't seem super thrilled with the employee pay aspect of it. Uh, Some were concerned that teachers were getting more than rank-and-file employees. Others were concerned that uh, there was too much of an emphasis on one-time bonuses uh, rather than uh, permanent increases that would count towards uh, an employee's uh, retirement and and pension balance. Um, That seemed to be the bulk of the discussion during the uh, Q&A part of that meeting on Wednesday morning. Um, not a whole lot uh, of surprises in the actual budget document I was flipping through. Um, and really, you know, in part because it's the, the second half of the two-year budget cycle. So these are really just kind of tweaks to the budget uh, for the second of the two years in the budget cycle. There's not a whole lot of uh, dramatic proposals in there. I mean, the, the focus really is on the uh, the teacher pay issue, um, and that's obviously something the governor uh, intends to campaign on, that he wants to be the guy who increased uh, average teacher salaries uh, by their metrics to $50,000 a year. Um, and, and I suspect we're going to hear that platform point out of the campaign a lot between now and November.
1: Right. I think it's uh, very clear that in this election year, salaries uh, and bonuses for state employees is going to be the the, the big uh, um, sticking point between the House and the Senate and the governor over the budget. It's probably going to be the, the most debated thing. Uh, we have the House that I think, you know, kind of wouldn't mind doing across-the-board raises. Yeah, when I talked to Nelson
0: Dollar, the head house budget writer afterwards, he said, you know, there's a lot of appetite in the House for across-the-board raises. Um, So you could see that come out of their budget. On the Senate side, uh, Harry Brown said he really likes the governor's approach, which is not to do across-the-board, but to uh, essentially target the raises at what are considered hard-to-fill positions. He feels like that better matches the market forces. And he came out and said several times on Wednesday, he thinks a number of state employees are overpaid for what they do. And this is something uh, by not doing across-the-board raises, uh, he feels like they can address that and, and solve that problem.
1: Right. I think I think their point is that if you give people raises who are in positions that are kind of hard to fill, hard to retain, or don't don't match the, what the private sector pays for those types of positions, it, it becomes harder to retain or, or get qualified people. So the Senate just doesn't want to reward everyone, including the people who might be paid more than, you know, than they get in the private sector. Instead, they kind of want to bring everybody up to to the right amount of pay. And that's kind of where the Senate and the governor are. It's interesting that the Senate and the governor are you know, agreeing strongly on something. It's usually kind of historically been the House and the governor who seem to get along better.
0: Yeah, and that's the fascinating part of this, is that, I mean, I, I think the Senate just in general uh, in the last few years has been f- more conservative further to the right than the House and I think Governor McCrory on a lot of issues. But on these budget issues... He seems to be more in line with the Senate which is, is interesting to me. I think the Senate is going a little bit further than him. Uh, Berger and, uh, and Harry Brown have both said that their spending increase target should be about 2%, uh, which is well below the uh, increase in population and inflation, which is sort of the, the metric a lot of conservatives want to go by. Uh, the governor's budget was, I think, a 2.8% increase. Um, and the House historically, at least last year, went with more. I would not be surprised if their number ended up higher when their budget comes out in the next couple weeks.
1: Right. Um, so I know uh, the individual House Appropriations Committees have scheduled uh, meetings for next week to go over their particular um, issues and, and, and budget uh, proposals. Um, we did talk to uh, uh, House Rules Chairman David Lewis today, and he, he gave us the clear impression that the House is really going to try to get get its budget out and, and done uh, fairly soon, um, maybe in the next few weeks. What are you hearing about that?
0: Yeah, that's what I heard from uh, Nelson Dollar yesterday was that uh, sort of within the next couple of weeks, they want to have the budget out. Um, I think a lot of the the waiting around is on the latest um, revenue numbers from the, the chief economist for the legislature, Barry Boardman. Those are expected to be out next week. Uh, so once they have those numbers, they can get a clearer picture of just how much money they have to play with um, and how tight or not tight this year's budget is going to be.
1: And that 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 forecast, those numbers will have a, a lot of impact on on. Whatever the final salary adjustments, raises, bonuses, uh, whatever will be, I assume. Um, Lots of budget talk for the next few weeks, I assume, here on the Domecast. So uh, stay tuned and we'll be back with our final segment. uh, The one you love, Headliners of the Week, right after this. How many homeowners does it take to change to ENERGY STAR qualified light bulbs? Answer all of them. And they have every reason to. The bulbs look really cool. They come in spiral, mini-spiral, and A-line shapes. They last and last, up to 10 times longer than traditional fixtures. And they use two-thirds less energy. That's win-win-win. Cool lighting, cool temperatures, cooler energy bills. From the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome back to the Domecast, and now it's time
3: for... Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week.
1: And we're back on the Domecast um, for everybody's favorite segment, Headliners of the Week. I'm Pat Gannon uh, from The Insider, hosting, filling in as host this week. Um, We've got three headliners about to enter the queue for this week. We're going to start with Dan Boylan. Dan, uh, who is your headliner of the week?
2: Pat, I'm going to go with law and order this week. It's uh, General Assembly Police Chief Jeff Weaver. He just retired. And he received the, uh, help me with the name of the award. Order of the Longleaf Pine. The Order of the Longleaf Pine for his uh, almost 20 years in service uh, leading the General Assembly Police. Uh, He's been recognized in recent years for keeping the force quite calm during these Moral Monday protests where things could have gotten out of control. uh, Kind of set the stage for there to be a clean democratic protest. Phil King, the Senate Sergeant at Arms, said that uh, he's a master diplomat.
1: Jeff Weaver from the uh, North Carolina General Assembly uh, Police, uh, who is retiring. They ha- held a, a reception for him at the General Assembly uh, today after um, uh, the sessions were over. Uh, it was a nice uh, ceremony, and he did get the order of the Longleaf Pine from the government, or from the governor. He's in uh, the hat, Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner this week.
3: Well, nobody is was more is more in the center of the budget stuff than uh, uh, Andrew Heath, who's uh, the governor's budget director, and he's only been the budget director for a few months now. I think I forget was took when he took office, but uh, it's a huge job to do, obviously, and he had to show up and spent some hours explaining it to the uh, joint uh, legislative committee. And I think at the end, Harry Brown gave him complimented him a number of times, saying, we recognize this is a hard job, even though he didn't always have the answers. Uh, there were a, lot of, a number of, I'll have to get back to you on that. And I deferred to so-and-so. Uh, Brown said, you did a really good job. Uh, and he's, he's a young guy, I don't know his age. Uh, he he's, he's rose quickly through the ranks of the Industrial Commission during the McCrory administration. But um, he'd be my pick.
1: Andrew Heath, uh, uh, Governor Pat McCrory's uh, budget director, who uh, was in the spotlight this week uh, presenting the governor's budget to uh, lawmakers. Uh, He's in the hat along with uh, General Assembly Police Chief uh, Jeff Weaver and Colin Campbell, uh, who's your headliner this week.
0: All right. I'm going with somebody who's uh, not been in the spotlight for at least for the folks who uh, read our political coverage here at the News and Observer and, and listen to, to Domecast. And that's uh, Eric Frederick, who has ably been serving as our uh, interim editor uh, of the Capitol team since January when Andy Curlis left. Uh, Eric, is the uh, main job here is the as editor of the News and Observer newsobserver.com. Uh, he has added uh, the stress of doing uh, Capitol uh, editing duties uh, for the last few months uh, in addition to that. So he's been to work at seven or eight a.m. every day and, and staying late to, to both make sure that the website's still running, but also to to keep us going. And I think he he bit off a little more than he thought he was going to when when he started in January. You know, in January we thought the the last few months would were going to be a, a fairly sleepy March fifteenth primary season and then a nice uh, quiet lull between March fifteenth and the the start of the short session. And instead, we had a huge redistricting uh, process. We had a short session on uh, transgender bathroom use, uh, and that has has carried us well into this session but uh he's done an excellent job uh keeping things together on the capital team and, and planning some of our bigger coverage that we've done including the uh, uh, preview of the short session that which appeared in, in last sunday's paper and i thought was a really comprehensive way to to get people ready for for what to expect so for his hard work and, and great leadership and uh keeping us uh, together these last few months i'm going to nominate eric for headliner
1: Wow, those are three great, uh, interesting picks this week. All, all of whom are are very much worthy of headliner of the week. But um, being a true homer, I'm going to have to go for um, Eric Frederick, the uh, interim capital editor at the News and Observer, who's kind of kept the, the 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 ship steered um, in the right direction during uh, a pretty rough time uh, and very busy time, uh, in state government here in Raleigh. Um, he will soon be replaced with a new, uh, face, uh, here, uh, at the NNO and, and we work closely with them at the insider. So, uh, Carolina hurricanes fan extraordinaire, uh, and, and a great fill in editor for the last couple months. Eric Frederick is our headliner of the week. Um, this week and we're gonna uh, since it was a really memorable week with a lot of uh, activity down on jones street we're gonna end this edition of the Domecast cast with some sound captured outside the house chamber um i guess it would have been monday with protesters singing gospel music so that's how we're gonna leave you today and we'll see you next week